Well, good morning again. I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. If you're visiting, we're uh, glad that you're here worshiping with us this morning. Thank you for joining us. You find us in a series on the book of Revelation, the first three chapters of Revelation, in which we read of these seven letters that Christ sent to the seven letters of Asia Minor long, long ago in what is now uh, Turkey, modern-day Turkey. We're going to be in chapter 3 of those letters this morning. You'll find that on page 1029 if you're using one of the Pew Bibles. And you'll find that in the last book of the Bible, whatever Bible you happen to be using today. Uh, Each of these letters, uh, written to particular congregations, though on the other side of the world and long ago, bring up issues that Christ has to speak to his church about today, that this is God's word to those people in that time, and it is God's word for us today as well. And so that's why we come to this. That's why we open this up and read, for instance, today uh, from the letter to Philadelphia, because we know that in it Christ speaks to us as well. Let me pray for us, and then we'll read and jump right in. Let's pray. Father, we do pray uh, that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts this morning. Lord, this is your word. Would you use it to do good in us? Would you speak to us? Father, we are um, in need of your encouragement in trial, in your strength, in your perseverance. So we ask that you would just flood that into our lives. We ask it now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, the letter to the church in Philadelphia. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door that no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. So to it we turn this morning. Uh, Each of these letters, there's overlap in the letters. Jesus brings up some of the same issues from letter to letter among the various congregations. Um, But but in each of these letters, we do see some general themes that that Jesus was addressing to these churches in this time and that matter for us as well now. And one of those that comes through most clearly in this letter is this theme of the reality in our lives of trials and sufferings of struggles that come into our life. And if you know anything about the Bible, you can pick it up almost anywhere from page one until the very end and find that the Bible is actually brutally honest about the fact that that this is a broken place and that we often struggle and struggle deeply. And that is true of everyone, believer in Christ and one who doesn't believe in Christ. Coming to Christ is not automatically 
or at all take away the struggles of our life. It gives us power in the midst of it, gives us the presence of God, but it does not make it disappear. And so first to last, Scripture addresses that real reality of our lives, that this is a broken place and we suffer. And that's the background to what's going on in this church, to this church in Philadelphia. And so I, I want to read a couple of verses actually from the book of James that kind of sets up the scriptural understanding of what's going on here so we can connect with what Jesus is saying in Philadelphia. Just a couple of verses here. James 1. Here's what James says about the reality of suffering in the lives of Christians. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Do you hear that? James is speaking to people in struggle and in trial, and he's saying God is calling you to be steadfast, to stand firm. God wants to do something in your life, to make you complete, to make you lacking in nothing. In other words, James knew uh, that there are uh, ways that we need to grow and ways that we need to be matured and ways that we need to bear fruit in life that can only come through suffering. There can only come through trial. There are some things that God would do in our lives that can only uh, be brought about in our lives on the anvil of those kinds of trials and sufferings. There was... Um, in in Wales in the early 1900s, in 1904 and 1905, there, there was what is now known as the Welsh Revival, this incredible revival in Wales as people in large numbers um, came to faith in Christ for the first time, were renewed in their faith, the churches were overflowing, people coming to hear the preaching of Scripture as their lives were changed. And in the middle of this revival, uh, there was one young pastor in particular who was preaching and drawing huge crowds, and the other older ministers in town got together to talk about what was going on. And they were very encouraged by the fruit of the ministry and what God was doing all around them, uh, and talking about this, this, this new person who was a part of this revival. But they had, they had one very serious con concern when one of the men said... So much good is going on, but here's my one concern with this pastor, that he has not suffered. He hasn't suffered. And these older pastors said, uh, there is a depth that comes to us in life and a depth even that comes to us in ministry that only comes in the context of suffering that God uses for good. And this church in Philadelphia understood what it meant uh, to suffer. They are one of the, uh, they're one of only two of these seven churches who get unadulterated praise from Jesus. Most of these churches that we've read through week by week, Jesus will praise something about them, and then he'll say, but I know your works, and I have this against you, and he will bring strong critique. This is one of the two churches that Jesus only has praise for them. He is encouraged by and in turn encourages them because they have held fast. Verse 8 says, I know your deeds. And he goes on to say that they have been beautiful in his sight because they know what it is to suffer and undergo trials. But verse 8, it says that you have kept my word, you have not denied my name. In the midst of your trials, in the midst of your struggles, you haven't stumbled. You haven't given up. You haven't turned and shaken your fist at me. Instead of you have remained faithful, knowing that I am with you in these. Verse 10, he says that they've kept his word about patient endurance. They're holding up faithfully. They are enduring. 
Because they came to see that trials and even the trial of various sufferings in life can, in God's hands, make you more mature. As we said, they can give you a depth and greatness of soul, a connection to God that can't be developed any other way. But you also know that that's not always the way it goes. Sufferings and trials have that power in God's hands to bring about that kind of effect in us. But you also know, and maybe personally, that uh, trials and suffering can also have the opposite effect. They can crush us. They can tear us apart. So the question for us is, when those things come into our life, how are we, like the church in Philadelphia, how are we going to be able to hold on faithfully as well? How are we going to be able to grow and thrive in the middle of trials and sufferings rather than be crushed, rather than collapse? How are we going to see our trials and sufferings make us great rather than bitter and broken? Okay, well, our passage shows us three things that we need to know to hold on to and to hold on to to thrive as God's people in the midst of the very real struggles of life that come our way. Okay, three things that we're going to see here that, that we must be people who believe what Jesus says, who see what Jesus has done, and who know what we will be. We must believe what Jesus says and see what he has done and know what we will be. First, we have to believe what Jesus says. <clears throat> One of the most fundamental questions for somebody as they wrestle with the, the claims of the Bible and the claims of Christ is you have to wrestle with this question, can I trust Jesus? Is, is he telling me the truth? When I read his words, when I read anything in the Bible, can I trust that, uh, that this really is going to speak truth to me? And it's also one of the things that we wrestle with once someone comes to faith and you live a life of wrestling with God. Time and again, you may find that you come to the place where you're wrestling with, can I really trust him? Can I trust his word? And sometimes those questions speak most loudly to us in the middle of trials and temptations and sufferings. Are we going to believe what Jesus says to us? Are we going to take him at his word? Are we going to live in a way, in such a way that the general trajectory of our lives is is lived in response to his word, to what he says, to the guidance he gives us, to the truth he speaks to us. Well, John brings that up, and Jesus brings that up in the very first verse here of his, as he identifies who he is. If you remember each of these letters, Jesus gives images of who he is and uses those to then speak to each of these churches. Well, look at what he says about himself here in, uh, here in verse 7. He says that he is the true one. The Holy One, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. These two things he says right off the bat, that he is speaking words to us, that he is communicating to us, that he is bringing a message to us. And he says that he, as the one who brings it, is the true one. What does that mean? It sounds a lot like what Jesus said to his disciples in John 14, 6. He said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is saying, I am the true one. He says, I, I am the embodiment of truth. I only speak truth. I live and breathe truth. If there's anything in life, in the world that is true, it has one way or another its origin in me. He is truth embodied. And so when he speaks, he speaks it with that kind of exhortation to us. Take me at my word because I am truth. But the second thing he says is that I am the holy one. That he is the pure one, the one who is set apart, who is in so many ways unlike us, who never speaks a false word, who never took a false step. 
In the Bible, time and again, God is called holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And here Jesus says, I, as God's son, I am, I am holy. I am morally perfect. The very God who said, thou shalt not lie, that is a reflection of his character. It's a reflection of the character of Jesus who will not lie. He says those two things to us as he calls us to listen. I am the truth and I am, I am the true one and the holy one. Now, there's only a few ways really to respond to this. You only have a few choices. One is you, you might be in the place where you'd say, I just don't believe it. I hear Jesus saying it, but I don't believe that he's who he says he is. I don't believe that he's the true one. I don't believe he's the holy one. And I'd simply say I think the Bible gives us good reasons to actually believe that. So I'd love to talk about it. Others here that would as well. But at least you have clarity. I don't believe it. Uh, there, there may be others of you that, that think this. I'm, I'm not sure I believe it. I'm here checking things out. I've been getting, coming to church for a little bit. I've started reading the Bible. I'm interacting with Christians. I'm trying to think about the claims of Jesus and what that means on my life. I'm not sure that I believe it. And so I would simply say continue to ask good questions. And know that God cares about your questions. And there are answers for them. Um, sometimes those answers end in mystery. But that too can be an answer. God is not afraid of your questions. See them through. Bring them to the Bible. Bring them to God. Or a third response to this might be, yes, I do believe it. I've, I've put my faith in Christ. I believe that his word is true. And, uh, I, I, and I rest in that. But there's also a fourth possible answer. And, and honestly, I think this is the one that most of us probably live in a lot of the time. And it's this. Uh, you know, do you believe that Jesus is this holy one, this true one? Yes, but, right? Yes, I do, but, but I'm so struggling in this one way. Or you, maybe you've been in a situation where you've been in a place where you've been able to encourage somebody you know and say, look, you've got to remember that God loves you. He is with you. He will never let you go. This is true for you. The Bible says it, but I'm not sure it's true for me. Right? Do you find it easier to believe the promises of Scripture, the promises of the gospel for other people than you do for yourself. Jesus says to us, I am the true one. In those moments in which we are saying yes, but, Jesus is very patient with us and he's very tender with us, but we need to know this. We are saying to him, Jesus, you are a liar. You don't have the truth. You don't know the whole truth. You certainly don't understand the complexities of my heart though you might understand normal people around me, right? That we too must uh, come to Jesus who says, I am the truth, I am holy, and therefore you can believe and trust what I have to say to you. You know, in many ways, um, this struggle of yes, but is, is one of the fundamental struggles of the Christian life, the struggle of unbelief. Are we going to really take Jesus at his word? Uh, every few weeks, uh, either Camper or I have to feel the need to quote from uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible, a Bible that we both and many of you read to your kids. Um, in, in the story of the fall of Adam and Eve, when Adam and Eve first eat the fruit, uh, here's what the narrator of that Bible says. Uh, they eat the fruit and it says this, And a terrible lie came into the world. It would live on in every human heart, whispering to every one of God's children, God doesn't love me. The terrible lie. But scripture time and again from the first page to the last speaks against this lie. Telling us that through Christ God has brought us home. He's forgiven us our sins. He has washed us clean. And Storybook Bible puts it this way. 
You see, no matter what, in spite of everything, God would love his children with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's what the Bible proclaims to us, his children. You see, God calls us, his people, to believe him, to take him at his word and to think and act in light of his word and what it tells us about what he's done for us. So the first thing we have to see is that, that he, we have to believe who he says he is, that he is the true one. But the second thing is we have to see what that true one has done for us. The second thing in this passage, see what Jesus has done for us. Verses 8 through 11. Central image here that Jesus and John give us in this passage is that of an open door. It says there's this open door. Uh, in uh, verse 7 he says, I have the key of David and uh, the one who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and who no one, and no one opens. Verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Okay, what's the deal with the door? What, uh, what's the significance of that? Well, you know that doors take us someplace, right? You know that if you come to a door and it is closed and it is locked, then you cannot get to what is on the other side. Not unless the person with the key comes and opens it up and lets you through. And that's actually what's going on here. A door is about access. And this door is about access as well. The door must be open to go through. What's on the other side of the door? Um, there was a... Um, there was a game show once, right, where, you know, what's behind door number three? And the whole audience would wonder, and they'd open it up. Well, what does Scripture tell us is behind door number one, the one and only door right here? What happens when it is opened for us? Well, we see that in, in Revelation 4. Tur turn over with me. L look just a little bit ahead at Re Revelation 4 when this door reappears. And I'm going to uh, do something I don't normally do, which is to read a long quote. I'm going to read chapter 4 for us because it matters what we see when Jesus opens this door. Revelation chapter 4. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four elders, or twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you, were, you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created." 
Do you hear what he's saying? He says, when Jesus has opened this door, this is where the door leads, right into the very throne room of God. He says that God, has, that God in Christ has come and he has opened this door for us, this door of access to heaven itself, to the God who is seated there on the throne. He has brought us in to our own heavenly Father. And he, when he opens that door, he says what? No one can close it. Uh, he has given us access. A, a few weeks ago, I was uh, in, in my office here in the church in a meeting, and uh, I, I hear these two little voices talking outside my door, and a knock on the door, and, and I open it up, and, and there's my five-year-old son, Henry, with one of his little buddies. They were here with a group of folks in our plane, and so they made their way back to my office. So Henry starts talking to me. I think he asked me if I had any candy in my desk drawer, which I didn't. So, uh, you know, un undeterred, he, he smiled and said goodbye, and they left. So uh, a few days later, Elizabeth tells me that she got in a conversation with Henry, and Henry had said to her, uh, out of nowhere, I had not told her the story, said, um, you know, um, I can go into Daddy's office anytime I want. I, I can go see Daddy any time I want to. And no context for this, she said, uh, yeah, that's, that's right. Came home and told her the story about this interaction we'd had. And, and what did Henry walk away with? He said, my dad is accessible to me. That door does not remain closed for me, but I can come in. And what is Jesus telling us here? That the door to the very throne room of God is open and never shut. That he has opened it and nothing can close it. That we have been brought into the presence of our Father as well. And this door that has been opened, it's been opened by the one, if you look in verse 7, who has the key of David. Okay, King David in the Old Testament is the paradigmatic uh, king of God's people. He is God's anointed chosen one to lead his people. And he had a long dynasty of kings that came after him, the anointed chosen kings of Israel. But these kings, for all the good they did, there was much bad. And everybody knew that we need a king better than this. And there was this longing for the messianic king, the son of David, who would one day come and rule rightly and rule forever. And Jesus is that king. He is the right son of David. And so when it says that here that he has the key of David, he is saying the king has come. Jesus is your king and he holds the key. He holds the key that unlocks the door. He has authority and he has power to do what we need most. To open the door and prop it open in such a way that it can never be closed. And he used this key in the most unusual way. How did he do this? How did he open it? And how did he secure it? Came in power, raining, raining down fire from heaven, bringing destruction on his enemies. No, he came humbly and seated on a donkey. And he went to a cross and he gave his life so that we might live, so that we might taste life. He, in the moment of the world's greatest weakness, actually turned it in the moment of the world's greatest strength because by his death and resurrection, he has taken the key and opened the door of access to the Father forever for us. He has the authority and the power. And this would have meant so much to this church in Philadelphia. Look at first, verse 8. Because they are a church that has little power. This church, this weak church, gets nothing but praise from Jesus they have stood, they have remained faithful, they have not denied his name, even though they have little power of their own. They would have been people who were uh, of little power and culturally marginalized in every way possible. They were in danger from Rome because they proclaimed that Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord. 
But they're also, and we get a hint of this in this passage, they're also in danger from the local religious authorities as well. You see these verses in here about the, this persecution they've had from what, what uh, Jesus calls here a synagogue of Satan. What's going on? Uh, early in uh, Christian history in Rome, Christianity was considered not to be a separate religion by the authorities of Rome. It was considered to be a subset, a sect of Judaism. Uh, and because of that, it, it um, enjoyed some uh, protection under Roman rule that the Jews had that other groups didn't have. And when uh, it became very apparent to everyone that Christianity was something different, it was taken out from under that umbrella of protection. And what's happening here is this: the local synagogue of uh, Jews in the city rejected the message of the church in Philadelphia. They rejected the message that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah, that he was, in fact, Lord, and they cast these people out. They would have nothing to do with them. They were rejected by this synagogue that Jesus ultimately says is a synagogue of Satan because it wouldn't follow him. So these people know what it's like to be persecuted and to be on the outside, both culturally and religiously. They were of little strength, but Jesus comes to them and says, I know you're of little strength. It's okay because I have all the strength. I know you look around and you feel like there are so many doors that are closed to you, but it's okay. I have the key, and I have opened the one door that matters, and it can never be shut. He says, because of me, he says to them, you are given what is most central, what is most important, unfettered, unthreatened connection and access to God our Father. Because Jesus has opened the door that nobody can shut. It's, it's, it's like what Jesus said in John chapter 10. He said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. In other words, this door has been opened and it cannot be closed. It's what Paul picked up on in Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's what Jesus said. It's what Paul said. And it is what we can say as well. That the door is open and nothing can shut it. Whatever trial, whatever struggle, whatever suffering is in our lives even now, that can't mean that God doesn't love us. Because Jesus has opened the door for us at the cross and it cannot be closed. Doesn't mean Our suffering does not mean that we are somehow far from God. Nothing can close this door. Not cancer, not family strife. Not the loss of a job, not financial struggle, not misunderstanding, not even persecution. What Jesus opens, no one can close. Let's think about this maybe in relation just to a couple possibilities for us. What is it that you are uncertain about and anxious about in your life, even right now, even this week? What's keeping you up at night? What's weighing down your soul? What's eating at you from the inside? Where are you fearful? Where are you struggling? <clears throat> Let me just suggest a couple ways and see how this open door matters for us. Maybe for you it's financial worries. These can be a trial, a struggle, even real suffering. What is true for you in the middle of a financial struggle, for example? Your God 
has you. He's holding you. The door to the very riches of heaven is open. He will not drop you. He will sustain you. And so you can pray in faith for his provision. Not the name it, claim it kind of prayer, but the Lord's prayer. Lord, give us today our daily bread. Are you going to let this struggle break you and fill you with doubt? Or will you base your confidence on God, on Him giving you, on God, or on Him giving you a certain standard of living? Will this struggle ultimately make you stronger? Will it help you trust Jesus more deeply as you see that you have little strength? But He has all the strength. He will meet you in your need. Will you trust that you have access to the Father, the one who has all the riches, who will give you whatever is best for you, and he will hold you all the way? Or just take one of those. Maybe, maybe the struggle for right now, the anxiety right now, is a health struggle. Health struggles can be real trial, real struggle, real suffering. Are you going to let this infirmity define you and distort your view of God, or will you trust him? Will you trust him to heal you? if that's what he thinks is best for you? Or will you trust him if he allows you to struggle, but struggling, continuing on, infused now with the sense of his presence and care and strength? Maybe he has things to teach you that he can only teach you through this particular struggle. And maybe if he were to heal you right now, you'd miss the very good thing he wants to give you, the good thing he is working in your soul, the good thing he is working around you that you can't even fathom right now. But whatever he does with your health, will you take him at his word that he loves you, that he has you in his hand, that he will not allow anything into your life that he will not ultimately use for good? Do you see that finances or health or whatever comes our way? Are we going to really believe and trust that Jesus is true? We can take him at his word, and his word says to us that we are to see what he has done. He has opened the door, and no struggle of our life can close it on us. Well, thirdly, we need to see not only that he's true and we can trust him and what he's done, we need to see what we will be. We've seen what Jesus is for us now. What will we be? Look at verses 12 and 13. In the end of each of these letters, we are given these glimpses, these pictures of life made right, of Christ having returned, of the glory of heaven brought here, of all things made right. Uh, There's a hymn that we sing occasionally called The Church's One Foundation, and here's one of the verses of that hymn. Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore, till with the vision glorious her longing eyes are blessed, and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. We are not the church at rest yet. We're the church right in the middle of the battle, right in the thick of it. But he says, and we are promised in Scripture, that one day we'll be the church at rest. The struggle will be behind us. All the trials will be taken away. Every tear will be wiped away. And we get a picture of this church at rest here. He talks about uh, being made into a pillar in the temple of God. Now, what does that mean? I don't really know. But here's what I do know. It's not what you expected to hear, was it? Remember that the vocabulary of Revelation is um, highly metaphorical. It's imagery, it's symbol, it's metaphor. So when you read this, you might think, you know, a, a statue. Well, what's he trying to communicate to these people? A picture in the midst of the up and down, shaking ground of their lives of persecution. He's saying, one day there will be stability and utter security. He says, one day I'm going to take you who feel even now like a, 
like a weed or, or like a reed, you know, whipped and broken by the wind. He says, one day you are going to be made like a pillar in the temple of God. And nothing will ever be able to take you out of his presence. That everything you long for most deeply, the goodness of his presence, things put back together, he says, you will have that forever in God's presence. That day is coming. We have to know who we will be. We will be God's people, not in suffering and trial as we are now. We will be God's people in glory on the other side of the struggle. And Jesus says, God's own name will be engraved on you and written on you. The name of God's own city, the, 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 uh, the eternal you know, new Jerusalem, which later in Revelation we see coming out of the sky, God's presence with his people forever. And Jesus says, I'm going to write my own new name on you. He says, I will be with you, and more importantly, you will be with me. Nothing will be able to take you out of my presence and out of the security of my hand. He is with us like that even now, but he's with us now in the midst of struggle. And he says, one day you will be with me on the other side of your struggle. He says that we have to know what Jesus says, that he's true, he's holy. We have to see what he has done. We have to know what we will be. Let's just end with this image again that stands in the middle of the passage. This door that has been opened. The door is open. Look inside and step through. Let's pray. Father, even to speak of the glory of heaven is beyond what we can imagine. And even to speak of the unbreaking love that you have for us can be so hard to hold on to. Would you remind remind us of it? Time and time again, would you speak and whisper and when necessary shout the truth of the gospel to us because we so easily become deaf and plug up our ears. Lord, we thank you for what Jesus has done for us, that he has won access to the throne for us, that he has opened the door, that he has the key, and that nothing can shut that door on us, that we are yours and forever. Would you use that reality? to breathe real hope and real endurance and real perseverance for us in the midst of the struggles of this life, knowing that they will not win, that you have. So we look to you in hope, in the name of Jesus, our only hope. Amen.